This is the Santita Jackson Show. everybody welcome to the santita jackson show on martin luther king's actual birthday everybody happy birthday reverend dr martin luther king he would have been 95 years of age he was killed at the tender age of 39 can you imagine someone who making who made such an impact upon the world in that space of time jesus had 33 years he had 39 years and boy oh boy we still continue to feel the impact of this great prophet's life, the drum major for justice, the prince of peace. We thank God for Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King today, and indeed we will be talking about his legacy, the myth and the man, and what was true, what was untrue, and how much of his message we've actually missed. Yeah, that's really a real deal. So much of what he stood for, so much of what he was killed for uh, are issues that would make him very unpopular today. He was staunchly anti-war. He said, you cannot fight a war on poverty and a war on Vietnam or Gaza or Yemen, etc., etc. You can't do that. You can't do them both at the same time. He'd be on another side of history. He wouldn't be with the status quo. Uh, he wanted to create a floor beneath which no human being could fall. That would get him called the socialist or communist today. This national day of service, that's lovely. But that really was not his point. If you want to serve, you need to be out marching so you can end the assault on Gaza and that genocide. That's how you serve. You don't just serve man. First of all, you serve God. And we serve God by serving each other and saving lives. So let's think about who Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King really was. At the bottom of the hour, we will be talking with Professor John Quickly, one of the top international law experts in the world, and he is going to go over for us what happened at The Hague, at the International Court, at the International Criminal Court, the highest court of the U.N., uh, what happened with South Africa's case against Israel, charging with, with genocide, and how is it that Germany, that genocided, Jewish people lined up with Israel on genocide, dismissing uh, the claims of genocide, as did the United States. We've got a lot to talk about today, but let's talk about Dr. King, what he meant to you, and who you think he really, really, not was, but is. What does he stand for? Not what did he stand for, but what does he stand for in your mind? Call us at 773. 763-9278-773-763-9278, the Iowa caucus is today. Who's going to come out on top? Well, everyone is pretty much in agreement that Donald Trump is going to come out on top, but will it be Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis? Which of those candidates will come in second? Nikki Haley is now pulling at 20%. Ron DeSantis is at 16%. But these frigid, cold Oh, these bitterly cold temperatures. They are way below zero up in Iowa, praying for all of them up there. That's going to impact turnout. The people with the most dedicated followers tend to do best 
in the caucus. So who do you think is going to come in number two, and will they be a strong number two? Will this What will this portend for New Hampshire? I want you to call me at 773-763-9278, 773-763-WCPT. I'm Santita Jackson coming to you from WCPT, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station and AM 950 radio, Minneapolis-St. Paul, the voice of progressive Minnesota. It is a joy to be with you today on January 5th, the actual birth date of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. We're expecting a high of three degrees. That's it, everybody. In Chicago today, it will be cloudy. Minneapolis, St. Paul, they will climb as high as negative two degrees, partly cloudy. In the NFL wild card round, boy, what a round it was. The Packers 48, the Cowboys 32, the Lions 24, the Rams 23, and a heartbreaker. The Texans 45, the Browns 14, and Kansas City 26, and the Dolphins 7. Today, the Bulls will be playing the Cavaliers, and last night, the Timberwolves bested the Clippers 109 to 105, both Chicago and Minnesota teams had the night off, and now I've got my gospel sister, Pam Morris-Walton, author of 57 Days, Wait for a New Heart, sending you so much love today. Everybody get that book. It is going to bless you. It is going to bless you. And and may you have a blessed King Day. Of course, we have our Martin Luther King uh, breakfast. It will Mm -hmm. be at Apostolic Church of God. You're on your way there after we get off the phone. I'm going to stop on through. And indeed, we have sent thousands. Rainbow Push, the Push Excel program, has sent thousands of young people to college. Tens of millions of dollars of scholarship money have been raised through this uh, through this breakfast and through Reverend Jackson's efforts down through the years. And so, uh, please get on over to Apostolic Church of God. Uh, even if it's oversold, you don't want to miss it because we just love gathering. <laughs> That's one of the largest king events in the country. Uh, my gospel sister, I'm so glad that you will be heading over there today. What's on your mind today? Today, good morning to you and, and, and all of your listeners and viewers. Uh, what's on my mind today is the state of this country but I know great things happen when we pray. Great things happen, Santita, when we pray. The effective, perfect prayer of a righteous man availeth much. You can find that in James 5 and 16, everybody. But the Amplified Bible translates that by saying the earnest, heartfelt, Continued prayer of a righteous man. That's a righteous man or a woman makes tremendous prayer available. What a great promise. God's power, God's power is available to us today. It is not locked up in some unaccessible place far from our reach, but it's possible for all of us to obtain. There is a way for us to experience that power and make it available to everybody we know. That way is through prayer, the effective, fervent prayer, the type of prayer that we all can give and do to change individual lives, cities and nations. There is nothing There is nothing that prayer cannot touch or change. I want to say it one more time. There is nothing that prayer cannot touch 
and change. The spiritual answer for people's need is prayer. In fact, we pray because we love people. We pray because we love God. We thank God for the finished work of Jesus in the cross and the resurrection because he has paid the price for everything we need. God is not withholding anything from us. When we pray, we are breaking through resistance from the powers of darkness and taking hold of God's willingness to do his plan in the earth. God is not against us. God is for us. We must pray. Every believer is called to prayer. It's a gift that Jesus has given us. So I'm convinced that prayer is not for a special group of people. It's not just for me. It's for everybody. Great things happen when we pray. Good morning, everybody. I love that, and it is so true. Great things happen when we pray. Nothing, 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 nothing can be untouched by that. And you are uh, truly... You have a test and you have a testimony. And I thank you for that. Yeah, walking miracle, walking miracle. And remember this, the Clark Sisters recorded a song years ago, Pray for the USA. Oh, Jeffy Dixon recorded a song saying, I know what prayer can do. I know you've seen that song, okay? Dorothy Norwood recorded a song saying, somebody prayed for me. What happened when they prayed for me? And Bishop Norman Wagner going on to be with the Lord, but he said prayer did it. So uh, let's pray. Great things happen when we pray, everybody. Pray. Pray for this country. Pray for each other. Pray for Santita. Pray for me. Okay. I'm going to stop. That's it. Amen. Everybody pray. And remember, faith without works is dead. You must pray and you must work and you must work and you must pray. Today, if you see anyone who is outdoors and living outdoors, take them to a police station, take them to a library, take them to City Hall, take them to the State of Illinois building, take them there and tell them that's where they need to stay. No one in America, no one in the world, our pastor, Reverend Clay Evans, said, I've never seen God make a mouth he couldn't feed. I've never seen God make a vision, and we are all visions of God. I've never seen God have a vision without making provision. Everybody on earth should be housed. There are 16 million vacant units of housing in the United States today. Nobody in America should be unhoused, and nobody should be outdoors today in Chicago, in Minneapolis, in Iowa, anywhere. Nobody. Nobody should be freezing to death. Nobody should be in their home freezing to death. They need to turn on people's gas and let people have heat. That's what needs to happen. Today. Today. Now, if you want to be faithful to the memory of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, I promise you, I believe he would be saying that. My God. I don't. I don't want to hear that there's a. There are not enough resources. There are. There are enough resources. There's just too many greedy people running the world and hogging them all, and hogging them all, and giving us what they want us to have. Mm. Breaks my heart to think. I don't care whether you were born in the United States or not. Nobody should be here without heat. No. Nobody should be on the streets today. Nobody. Oh, nobody. 
broken my heart. And I think about it because when I was born, I was born when my parents were in college. My parents didn't have a place to stay, but the Holsies were kind enough to let my parents stay with them. I my father tell me the stories about having to stand in the food line at Fellowship Missionary Baptist Church because his scholarship money ran out. My mother's job at the library and his job as a waiter and his scholarship money just wasn't enough. But they had three children. My father had three babies he had to feed. And my mother said, we couldn't afford any of you. What were we supposed to do, put one of you back? Everybody who's on earth deserves to be here. And they deserve to be fed, clothed, and housed. And not calorically restricted like we're doing to people in Gaza. Shame, shame, shame. 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 And there's that. I love you, my gospel sister. I love you, too. I had, to, I had to say that this morning. breaks my heart, cold as it is. I'm sitting up in here warm, and I'm thinking about people cold today. It just breaks my heart. Yeah. Yeah, I hear you. So I love you, Pat. I love you, Pastor Pam. I love <laughs> She's got you. a ministry. She's got a ministry, <laughs> and it has, it has not stopped. And we just thank God for you today. We thank God thank for you. Pam Morris Walton. 57 days. Wait for a new heart, everybody. Pick it up. It's going to bless you. It's going to bless you. We've got Dr. Shanita Knight, an infection preventionist, with us today. Dr. Knight, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? As you can hear, I'm a little warm this morning, but um, I'm thinking about people who are cold today. I'm thinking about people who are in lack. I'm thinking about people who are hungry today. And it hits me in a most acute way. And... Um, Somebody's going to lose their life today because they've not been protected, and I think that's just a shame. It's a sin and a shame before God. But what is on your mind today? Um, I was actually going to ask you that in regards to infection prevention and control. Um, what questions particularly do you have that maybe can help our audience today? You know what? My question is, how, do, how does one protect oneself when... You have such a dip, a dip in temperature, right? Um, people used to call this pneumonia weather, right? You know, when you have, when it's 30 degrees one day and it's below zero the next day. I mean, what, what nutritionally or just what, what should we be doing to protect ourselves, you know, against these unforeseen circumstances? I think that's. So I don't think it's the so the cold temperatures is not what makes people ill. It's people's inability to like let's say um, regulate their body normally. So for example, when somebody would say this is pneumonia weather because there's a significant shift in temperature, that is what makes people more prone to being ill because your body is no longer at what we call homeostasis where it is at a balanced state. And so when it is either too hot, too cold, and it's going through a change in temperatures, then it increases your risk because your cells are confused in regards to what it is that they should do at that moment. And so when we have, like, those, let's say, fight or flight cells that should be protecting our body and building up our immune system, they then think they need to fight for the immune system and all the time, that is not necessarily the case, but that is the way in which the body works. 
So being cold in itself is not necessarily the problem as much as it is the changes in temperature. Um, if we're asking someone what do they do to protect themselves during extreme temperatures, I'm still going to emphasize the same things I was before in regards to making sure that you're eating a nutrient-dense um, diet. Uh, I always preach about gender and the importance of it. It is one of those foods, you know, that's anti-inflammatory. It does also, you know, act as a thermal regulator in that if anyone has ever had ginger or tasted it, it's very spicy. And so the same way that cayenne pepper would work with helping the body is the same way that ginger would as well. And so it's just looking at the foods that you're eating, understanding if they're nutrient-dense, if they're anti-inflammatories, or conversely, if they are foods that are going to harm you because they are highly processed. If you are consuming a diet of highly processed foods, just know that that is going to unfortunately lower your immune system. How do you, I mean, the poor pay more, and the poor, quite frankly, get the get the worst food. I remember as a child protesting at stores that served us rotten food. That was in the late 60s and early 70s, early to mid-70s. But when you go into poorer communities, you have food deserts. You know, you have, you know, when you go to the higher-end stores, they sell water, food, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you don't have the same options in poor neighborhoods. I mean, you don't even have chain stores in many of the most, in the poorest areas in the United States. What should people who are struggling do? And particularly, you know, let's think about it. Everybody might not be, say, um, in poverty, but you have a lot of people who lost their jobs, right? I mean, a lot of people are just struggling. They're struggling. What would you What would you advise them to do? What should, How should we prioritize how we eat? Well, that's a difficult challenge, Santia, because we none of us I was going to say can, it's hard to talk about that area unless you're in that area, right? Meaning that we all, at some point in our lives, have had a time of where things have not been going so well. And some of us, as you mentioned, you know, in worse conditions or others, there's still a change in a living condition, right? So I am sensitive to that when talking because I know that Everyone has, like let's say, some sort of level of struggle. And if there is something financially that may not be sort of like somebody's norm, it's still a change. And so recommendation-wise, you're right. There are individuals that may not have fresh food. Next to fresh food is still going to be frozen, and then next to frozen is still going to be canned goods. Frozen, because they're frozen, they have uh, less of a chance of having the preservatives to be able to keep it fresh. If you end up with a can, then inside of the can, you're more prone to high sodium because they use salt products to be able to preserve the vegetables that are in the can. So if you can't do fresh, then it will be frozen. If you can't do frozen, then it will be canned. And it's just remembering that sometimes you have to do the best that you can in order to be able to get the nutrients that you need. 
Well, now that's the, that's what I'm talking about because you know canned fruit does exist. So if if that'll help people, you know, then so be it. If frozen fruit will help people, then so be it. Because people need to know what their alternatives are. Because fresh fruit increasingly is becoming um, a luxury. So much of this, so much of the things that we need increasingly are becoming luxuries. Would you recommend a uh, a vitamin supplement? So, um, as I've mentioned before, not all vitamins are good because they can unfortunately contain ingredients that can cause side effects such as diarrhea, such as skin irritation, such as abdominal pain. And if you think about someone that is trying to hold on to their nutrients, a vitamin can actually end up working against them if it does not have the right ingredients. So I always say if it's not broken, don't try to fix it. However, if you are someone and it's like, hey, I at least need to make sure that I'm getting my nutrients in, it's making sure that additives are not a part of it. Meaning, if you're taking vitamin D, you should not be subjected to ingredients that lead to weight gain, such as amaltodextrin. If you are taking vitamin D, you should not be prone to silicone dioxide or magnesium stearate, which can cause upset stomach and diarrhea. So there are ways in which, yes, while taking vitamins may be important to someone, if they're taking vitamins with bad ingredients in them, it's working against them. It's just like somebody drinking, let's say, some of those powered flavored drinks. And I won't name any brand, but they might say, oh, well, I'm drinking this drink because it's giving me electrolytes. But guess what? Those food additives, such as blue dyes, the red dyes, the yellow dyes, they're pulling those same nutrients that you're getting right from your body. So you end up in a balanced state of ultimately consuming nothing but sugar. And we know what sugar does to the immune system. So it's really us thinking through everything that we eat as if it is a problem equation and asking, is this going to do me more harm or is it going to do me good? Dr. Dr. Shanina Knight and everybody telling us how we can be healthy, particularly through this uh, this tough period. It's going to be tough for a little while longer. And... um, I hope everybody is as healthy and helpful as they can be. Sending you so much love, you and your beautiful family, sending you so much love today, Dr. Shanita Knighton. You have a wonderful day as well. You too, everybody. Let's talk about the case against South Africa. Uh, No, excuse me, the case that South Africa is pressing against Israel, rather. Um, it was uh, quite quite a, a trial that they had at The Hague. Let's talk with Professor John quickly about it on the San Peter Jackson Show back in just a minute. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Hey, 
welcome to the Santita Jackson Show on Martin Luther King's actual birthday and the national holiday. Happy birthday, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. How would he want us to acknowledge his birthday? First of all, it is important to note that he worked through his birthdays. He did not have parties and things like that. He did none of that. And on his last birthday, my father often recalls that it was a working birthday for him, as it always was. They were in Atlanta uh, getting together uh, the Pool People's Campaign, the March on Washington. They had planned to have a sit-in on Washington to end poverty. They were bringing together Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta and people from all walks of life, rabbis, Jews, Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, atheists, agnostics, believers, non-believers, who wanted to end poverty for all time in America and the world, and that's how he, that's how he celebrated, or how, should I say, that is how he, what he did on his birthday, he worked. He worked. He worked. He worked. And so let's talk about that. We had the Peace Summit at Rainbow Push, and that's what I believe Dr. King would have done. He would have been calling for an end to the genocide in Gaza, and we need to talk about that here on the Santita Jackson Show. Let's talk about what's happening in Gaza. The International Criminal Court, the highest court in the U.N., has heard the case from South Africa charging Israel with genocide. And shockingly for so many of us, Germany sided with South Africa. And and so did the United States, quite frankly. And indeed, um, the Intercept article says that America is the unnamed co-conspirator in the genocide against South Africa. So I said, let me get one of the top legal minds in the world to help us to understand this. Someone who literally got up in the morning because people all over the world wanted to get his assessment of what was going on. So he watched the whole, all of the cases being presented and knows several of the lawyers who presented the cases. And so we welcome Professor John Quigley, back to the show. Once again, Dr. John Quigley, Professor Emeritus of International Law at The Ohio State University, the author of The Statehood of Palestine, International Law in the Middle East, and International Diplomacy of Israel's Founders, and the Roots for War, American Interventionism Since World War II. Welcome back to the show, uh, Professor Quigley. What happened? What happened? First of all, what did we see? Um, does this go to jury? What was presented, and what's next? Well, I mean, what happened is that there was a hearing uh, last Thursday and Friday morning um, because South Africa is asking the court to issue a kind of injunctive order uh, within a, a couple of weeks, hopefully, uh, that would... Uh, call on Israel to stop committing genocide in Gaza. So what are they, what's the evidence that they presented? Uh, they presented a great deal of evidence, uh, some of it uh, video, um, uh, some of it photographic, some of it uh, through statements. Uh, uh, that have been made by officials of Israel um, to, to show the devastation that is being uh, wrought upon uh, Gaza uh, now with over 24,000 people being killed and people being 
uh, ordered to move around all the time and uh, just, you know, pick up from their houses uh, or now, you know, pick up from their tents uh, and go somewhere else. And, and, and the U.N. has said that probably half the population is at risk of starvation uh, as a result of, of the lack of, uh, of access to, to food, uh, to fuel. Um, uh, so um, that was the basic evidence that they, they showed some quotes. Uh, they kind of put them up on a screen. There was a, a lot of video. Um, uh, they put up statements of different Israeli officials saying how they were going to exterminate the people. I mean, it's a rather uh, unusual instance of genocide in, in that usually people who are perpetrating genocide don't tell you that they're doing it. <laughs> they, they try to cover it up a little. Um, but here we had the officials of Israel uh, saying that that uh, civilians should be killed. Now, sometimes the uh, the cooler heads would <laughs> come in and try to to tell them to you know not to say that kind of thing. In other words, not to be honest. Uh, but uh, they've continued uh, uh, saying it. But you know, calling people human animals, talking about their extinction, because their their officials all over the world and within the country have been quite bold about these statements about why Palestinians should be eliminated. Was that what was pointed out? That's exactly. Uh, Mr. Netanyahu, the prime minister, made a speech uh, in in which he. Uh, cited the Bible uh, and cited a, a passage of, uh, about a war between the Jews and the Amaleks. Uh, and, and in the passage, um, uh, God is telling the Jews to kill all of the Amaleks, the children, uh, everybody in the in that society, uh, and. Mr. Netanyahu quoted that uh, when he explained what the government of Israel was planning to do in in Gaza. Uh, so that that was was you know shown on on the screen uh, to the judges, and and uh, I, I know they've never heard anything like that before. What reactions from people? about, you know, these statements that I just think the average person would think they're pretty outrageous or were people, uh, I mean, were the proceedings quiet? Uh, Oh, yes. The proceedings in the court are always uh, quiet. So, I mean, the, the lawyers for Israel were all there and they had to, you know, remain quiet while this was all being done. And the same when the Israeli lawyers were were arguing, and they they said some rather outrageous things. Uh, but the lawyers for South Africa had to to sit and be quiet and listen. What did, and the audience, what did the, Israeli, the audience as well? Well, what did the Israelis? What can you give me a snapshot of the South Africans' case and a snapshot of the Israelis' case? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, the snapshot of the 
South African case is that the government of Israel has created in Gaza uh, conditions of life that are calculated to bring about the destruction of the Palestinians there. And, and that, those words I'm saying come directly out of the uh, Genocide Convention of 1948. Um, so th- that's the South African case. Uh, the Genocide Convention actually does not uh, come into play only when you have the killing of hundreds of thousands or millions of people and the way you did in the Second World War. It was written with the idea that uh, genocide should be uh, prevented, uh, that is, that mass killing should be prevented by making it a crime to to do what you might call the first step towards mass killing. So it's defined as creating conditions of life on a population uh, where the intention is to destroy the people. Uh, but you don't actually have to do a great deal of killing <laughs> in order to be guilty uh, of genocide. So, so that's why the the uh, South African case uh, is rather easy uh, to make when you have these kinds of statements. Uh, the, the genocide convention uh, w- can be triggered with relatively little killing, which is is why when President Truman tried to get the U.S. Senate to approve it. President uh, Truman signed the Genocide Convention in 1950, Um, but it couldn't go into effect for the United States without the consent of the Senate. When he took it to the Senate, Senate, (laughs) um, uh, I don't know if if, uh, this is being taught now. I don't think it is very much, Um, but... Uh, it, it failed in the Senate, and that's because senators from the South looked at the wording of the Genocide Convention, and they realized that a Klan member uh, who participated in a lynching uh, could be guilty of genocide because that person would be killing with the intention of of destroying the, the entire population. <laughs> uh, so I, I mentioned that just to indicate the the scope of the Genocide Convention um, and, and why South Africa is saying it applies in this uh, situation. Then you have, yeah. Well, well, you know, just to interrupt, which probably helps to understand Paul Robeson and others' case that they took the U, to the UN charging America with genocide of black people, right? Exactly. Yeah, that was the the case that the NAACP uh, took to the UN uh, to try to get the UN to deal with, with uh, segregation. Yeah. So, so what did what did the what did the Israelis say? <laughs> well, their um, <coughs> response was to focus on what Hamas did um, when it went into Israel. Um, And the problem for the Israeli lawyers is that um, if you commit genocide, it doesn't really matter why you're doing it or what you're responding to. Um, 
I mean, genocide, even if it's committed by the other side, uh, doesn't allow you to go in and, and commit genocide. Um, of course, genocide you know, wasn't being committed by Hamas, although they did do some things that violate the law, to be sure. Um, but in any event, the, the Israeli lawyers focused on that and went on at great length, um, which, um, to my mind, really showed that they didn't have any good arguments to make. And I think that's probably uh, what, what the judges are concluding as well, because when, as a judge, you see somebody making an argument that just, you know, throws dirt on the other side but isn't really relevant, that shows you that they don't have much in the way uh, of, of legal arguments. But they did try to say that uh, the government of Israel does not intend to destroy the the people of, of Gaza, uh, that they're just uh, trying to, to go after the, the Hamas organization. Um, but but that runs up against some statements that have actually been made by some of the officials of, of Israel, uh, saying that the entire population of of, of Gaza is uh, supporting what Hamas does. So you know, implying that that everyone is a uh, is an enemy and and uh, can be. Uh, attacked. In fact, the, the Israeli government has said anyone who didn't uh, comply with the evacuation orders would be considered uh, to be uh, uh, part of of uh, the Hamas group and, and therefore would be subject uh, to being killed. Where does where does Germany come in? Um, How did they get involved, and what did what have they said? About three or four days ago now, the German government announced that it plans to do what is called an intervention in the case, which is a formal um, method uh, for other states to become involved. Uh, in a case, uh, uh, Germany has announced it will file what's called a declaration of intervention. Um, and when you do that, you can support one side or the other. And Germany has said it's going to support uh, Israel uh, in the case. It hasn't said exactly what it will say in its intervention. It will be a written document that it will uh, submit uh, to the uh, court. Um and that uh, announcement by Germany has elicited quite a bit of, of uh, uh, criticism, um, you know, given the fact that Germany was involved in committing genocide uh, during the Second World War um, and, and even before that. Um, one of the first instances of mass killing uh, in, in modern times was perpetrated by Germany against the Herero population in southwest Africa uh, around uh, 1900. Um, 
And in my field, in international law, when we talk about genocide, uh, that is what is always cited uh, as the the in, incipients of, of genocide in, uh, in modern times. It, it was uh, uh, killing of hundreds of thousands of people. So uh, for for Germany to come in now and say it's going to uh, support uh, Israel is quite outrageous. I think the political background to that is that Germany uh, is very sensitive uh, about the issue of of, uh, of Jews, you know, given what Germany did during the Second World War. So among all of the European countries, it has been the most uh, supportive of Israel at the political level. But how can they justify this, given their record? And and how can Israel accept their support? It just seems quite odd. Yeah, it it is quite amazing um, that they'll do this. I mean, I think they'll try to make technical arguments that while Israel may have committed war crimes, it hasn't committed genocide or, or something like that. What is next? I mean, is there anything? I mean, do do we? I mean, does this? When you have this kind of case, does it take days, weeks, months, years for it to be processed? Well, it will go on probably for about two years, um, which is why this initial stage of the case. Uh, is so important because, as I say, the the court will likely issue an order within a couple of weeks, um, uh, giving what they call provisional measures um, uh, or an injunction that uh, the parties should not, you know, violate the, the the law during this time that the case is pending. Um, so in terms of protecting the population of Gaza, this is the critical point in the case. Uh, what the court may say two or three years from now um, uh, is less significant. Uh, um, so that's why there is so much focus on this hearing that, that was held uh, Thursday and Friday. Well, we understand that, you know, we keep hearing that what... Uh, what the U.N. will rule will not have peace. But there are broader political implications, I understand, and even business applications. What could be the fallout of this case for Israel uh, or even South Africa, but particularly for Israel? Well, it could have significant ramifications for Israel because up till now the Israeli government has been able to proceed with a narrative uh, that it treats the Palestinian people well. Uh, Of course, many people don't believe that, but um, uh, Israel has not been formally challenged uh, on that. So I think it may uh, lead to a rather significant shift at the international level uh, in the approach to the entire uh, Arab-Israeli 
conflict uh, and may may lead to more significant action uh, through the United Nations and other international organizations uh, to try to uh, bring the occupation of, of Palestine to an end. Well, I mean, well, businesses, well, do you believe that the BDS movement might grow? Um, will, will countries impose sanctions? I mean, do you see anything like that happening? Yes, yes, that could be raised to the to the governmental level. The United Nations, under the charter uh, of the United Nations, when there is a threat to the peace, uh, can institute uh, sanctions, uh, diplomatic sanctions. They could uh, call on countries uh, to you know not to have diplomatic relations with Israel. Uh, they could expel Israel from the United Nations. Um, certainly here, um, Israel is defying the United Nations. Uh, after this hearing, Mr. Netanyahu made a statement in which he said that if the court orders Israel out of Gaza, uh, he will not comply with it. Um, now, uh, to, I think that is the first time that any government has ever said to the International Court of Justice, even before a ruling, that, that it will not comply with, with the ruling. So, uh, you know, and, and the court is part of the United Nations. So uh, Mr. Netanyahu uh, is, is saying that, that, you know, what Israel does, uh, uh, it does regardless of what it is told by the United Nations. Um, and if you do that in an organization, uh, you know, that, that calls into question whether you are uh, a loyal member of the organization. But how their rights be respected if they don't respect the United Nations or the rights of others? I mean, how is that supposed to work, Professor Quigley? Final question. Well, countries are supposed to comply. The, the Charter of the UN uh, has a provision that requires states to cooperate with the United Nations um, uh, in efforts to protect human rights around the world. So it, it says that in so many words in the Charter. So that is an obligation of membership uh, to uh, work with the organization when it is trying to protect human rights. Uh, and that's what the United Nations uh, has been trying to do now for many years uh, in the Palestine uh, territories. It has uh, repeatedly criticized Israel for, you know, for building settlements in the territory of, of Palestine, uh, for putting large numbers of Palestinians in, in prison, um, uh, and and uh, so when Israel defies the organization, uh, it, it's really uh, calling into question uh, its membership. Hmm. Professor John Quigley, The Ohio State University, we will be watching this going forward, and we'll see where all of this goes. I thank you for helping us to understand what did happen and... Um, and just why it is significant, what the fallout could be. 
Professor John Quigley, everybody, The Ohio State University. Thank you so much for being with us today, and may you be blessed on this King holiday. Thank you, Rich. Thank you. Everybody, let's talk about who Dr. King really, really was. I mean, really, he was the most hated man in America when he died. And if you really look at his policies and what he stood for, he'd be hated today. Certainly, he'd be controversial. Let's talk about it on the Sam Peter Jackson Show back in just a minute. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. We can change the world, change the world, change the world. We can change the world, we can change the world, change the world. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Everybody. Welcome to the San Peter Jackson Show. It is January 15th, Monday, Monday, 2024. Dr. King's actual birth date. Happy King Day. May God bless you on Martin Luther King's birthday. Many people are saying that this is a day of service, but actually this is a day of action. I'm going to talk about who Dr. King was and is, um, and we want to get get it right. This past weekend, um, the people who were gathered on this phone call today were in Chicago at a peace summit. That is what Dr. King would have been doing for his birthday. On his last birthday, he was actually organizing the Poor People's Campaign, a march on Washington, a sit-in on Washington, the launching of Resurrection City. That's what he was doing on his birthday, not just passing out meals, but ensuring that everyone in the world and in America had a meal. So let's talk about that today. Who was Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King? Someone who is venerated, vaunted in many, many circles today. But indeed, he was the most unpopular man in America in the final years of his life. Um, and his descent was swift and sure, and his assassination uh, did nothing but enlarge him, make him bigger than ever before. You can kill a man, but you cannot kill a movement and the truth that he stood for, it continues to march on. I'm Santita Jackson. I want you to call me at 773-763-9278, 773-763-WCPT. Let me know what your impressions of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King are. Who is he to you? Did you know that he was the most unpopular man in the United States? I mean, more than 70% of white people disapproved of him. More than 50% of black people disapproved of him. Dr. King could not get into black pulpits. And those black pulpits he got into, like our pastor, Reverend Clay Evans, Dwight McKee, they were punished. They would not allow Reverend Evans, who's one of the most popular preachers in the country, they would, the bankers shut down on him and would not allow him to finish building his church. We had to pass that church for several years as the beans rusted to punish not just him, but those who stayed with him. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the hostility that Dr. King faced and the hostility that he would face today, standing for the poor, standing for the least of these. Call me at 773-763-9278, 773-763-9278. What would he be talking about with Gaza and the West Bank in Israel? Where would he be with this ICJ case? Uh, charging Israel with genocide. Where would he be as we look at Yemen and as we look at the BRICS nations, as we look at war and peace? Where would he be? What would he be talking about today? What would he think about poverty? What would he think about an American government that is not standing up against genocide? We chastise our government today as he chastised the government over Vietnam. 
I think so. Let's talk about it. 773-763-9278. Let's get to some of these headlines. Devin, uh, WCPT 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station, and AM 950 Radio, the voice of progressive Minnesota. We're going to have a high of, get this, three degrees above zero in Chicago today. It is bitterly cold, bitterly cold. And in Minneapolis, it is even colder than that. They will have a high of two degrees below zero, partly cloudy. If you see anyone who is outdoors, unhoused, take them to a library, take them to a, a police station, a firehouse, take them to City Hall, take them to a state building, take them somewhere so they can be warm. We've got to confront homelessness in America. There are 16 million vacant units of housing in the United States. Nobody should be without housing right now. And people without gas or without heat in their homes, safe heat, we need to deal with that, too. We really, really do, everybody. And, well, moving on to sports. NFL wild card round, the Packers 48, the Cowboys 32, the Lions 24, the Rams 23, the Texans 45 and the Browns 14, and the Kansas City team was triumphant over the Dolphins 26-7. In the NBA, the Bulls will be facing off against the Cavaliers tonight. The Timberwolves 109, the Clippers 105. The NHL had their time off, but today is the day that 2024 begins, everybody. The Iowa caucus will t- caucuses will take place tonight. Republican voters will gather at voting precincts at 7 p.m. Central to pick their preferred presidential candidate. Former presidential Donald Trump has a wide lead. The former U.N. ambassador and South Carolina governor, Nikki Haley, and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis are fighting for second place. Polls show her leading slightly at this time, but we will know tonight. Sub-zero temperatures have complicated the last days of campaigning. We'll see how they impact caucus turnout. Tonight. It's been more than 100 days since the Israel-Gaza war began. More than 20, at least 24,000 people have been killed. Palestinians have been killed. 23,960, that's the official number. People are getting killed every day. One percent, one percent of that population killed. Think about that, everybody. Taiwan elected an independence-leaning candidate as president. The vice president and an informer, independence advocate, won 40% of the vote on Saturday, despite China's attempts to interfere in the election. Three migrants drowned at the U.S.-Mexico border this weekend. A woman and two children died after Texas National Guard members denied U.S. Border Patrol agents access to part of the Rio Grande, according to federal authorities. This is the latest dispute between federal and state officials over control of part of the border where thousands of migrants have arrived in recent months. And those are some of the headlines, everybody, on the Santita Jackson Show. Let's talk about Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, someone who uh, we just see uh, him as really a relatively harmless figure today, but he was so harmful that our government... Uh, harassed him, tried to get him to kill himself. Um, and many people feel that they were complicit in his death. And so let's talk about that today. He was had a 70-plus percent disapproval rating in the white community. More than 50 percent of black people disapproved of him, too. Who was he? He was so powerful that the National Baptist Convention, the largest black religious organization at the time, split. Because his politics were such that 
uh, Reverend Dr. Joseph Jackson uh, said, you must leave. And other establishment black preachers said, you have to leave. They, they formed the Progressive Baptist Convention. I can't wait for you to tell us about that, Reverend Dr. Yeary. And we need to talk about that today, everybody. Indeed, Reverend Dr. Joseph Jackson of Olivet here in Chicago, disliked Dr. King with such fervor that when his church, which is on Martin Luther King Drive, when they renamed, I guess it was Parkway Boulevard, after Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, he shut the front door of his church and moved the official front door of his church to the side so the address of his church would not have to reflect the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's name. What manner of man was this? What manner of man was this? Let's talk about that. With Dwight McKee, brilliant social scientist, dean of the Ma'afa Redemption Project, indeed one of the organizers of the very successful Peace Summit, hundreds turned out inside of the insane weather in Chicago, but thousands upon thousands of you joined us online. Thank you so much for that. You can still go to rainbowpush.org and look at that summit. You really don't want to miss it. It was something special. We started something, everybody. We started something. And, of course, Reverend Dr. Todd Geary, Esquire, Rainbow Push. International uh, Leadership Team, Douglas Memorial Community Church, Senior Pastor out of Baltimore, and the Right Reverend Raylan Hackler, who was with us this weekend, Fellowship for Reconciliation, Poor People's Campaign, former chair and the former senior pastor of the Plymouth United Church of Christ in Washington, D.C. Welcome all of my friends to this show. Reverend Hagler, what do we not get right about Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King today? Are we missing anything? Well, I think there's um, a continued temptation to try to turn Dr. King into a caricature of what he was, to make his message palatable and mild and meek and not as stirring as Dr. King was, that moved people, that disturbed people, that caused people to examine their values and their understanding of themselves. And in a sense, one of the dangers of making a holiday is that we sort of pasteurize King and make him into something that he was not. It was not a focus on volunteerism, cleaning up parks, but it was a focus on changing the very societal structure that made people poor, that disempowered people, that oppressed people. And it was also pointing out the values of this nation where we still are the greatest purveyor of violence in the world. That we fund all kinds of military adventures. Like in 67, he spoke out against Vietnam. And here today, in 2024, we need to speak out against the U.S. support of Israel in Gaza. Do you think Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King would be doing that today? Well, every indication from who he was, his writings, is yes. As he talked about the triple evils of poverty, racism, and militarism, he saw them as linked together. You know, today we're sending more aid to Israel, some $5 billion by executive order. But yet we're threatening to cut um, uh, WIC, uh, women and infants, services to women and infants. So 
it continues to point out the kind of um, uh, disparities in our priorities that we could go and fight and send bombs and send missiles to Israel without a debate. But yet, we can't deliver adequate health care or counsel student debt or make sure that everybody has something to eat because somehow that's seen as giving something away when we give missiles and bombs away every day to despotic governments. Hmm. Reverend Dr. Yuri, I'm aware that you have to leave us very soon. Uh, your thoughts about Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King today and how we perceive or misperceive him? Well, good morning, Santita, to my colleagues, and uh, a good Dr. King holiday to all of you. I, I think the the prior comments are spot on. Here's, here's what was going on. It was an uneasiness in 1960, 1961, around what was the role of the church in facilitating social change? What would be the method? And in the backdrop of the story about Dr. King and uh, President J.H. Jackson was this threat that Dr. King would challenge J.H. Jackson's leadership of the National Baptist Convention. There had been an attempt to try to recruit Dr. King to run against him. Dr. King uh, did not agree to do that. And so the, the issue was, how do you facilitate change and what tactics do you use? And so there was an uneasiness of Dr. King's belief in direct action by uh, getting in the streets and uh, making sure that there are public protests and putting pressure not only on elected officials, but actually on other clergy, right? The church could not sit silent. We remember the letter from Birmingham jail uh, that, that came a bit later. The, the Montgomery bus boycott had been successful and folks were like, okay, this could work, but can we do uh, this a little bit differently without taking on all of this uh, disruption? And so the, the thing that we forget about Dr. King is Dr. King's emerging leadership was not void of significant conflict and resistance. And it wasn't that he was uh, trying to assume a title or trying to hold an office. He was trying to make a difference. And so the path to doing that was to get engaged in the work and not necessarily in the, in the struggle, in the fighting uh, for power and title. It was in, I believe, the 1961 election when uh, Dr. Gardner Taylor uh, challenged J.H. Jackson. There was some dispute over who had won the presidency. There was a whole melee that kind of broke out uh, as, a, as a result of it, that there became this need now to recognize uh, that we could not sacrifice the, the need for significant social change through the leadership and the engagement of people of faith, that there was now a, a, a necessity to start an entity that was committed to the principles of justice, uh, using the tools of not just uh, litigation, but demonstration, direct action uh, in the process of building love community. And so the Progressive National Baptist Convention grows out of that movement uh, to, to recognize that uh, uh, there, there's, there's a different path. 
we may disagree. I think the issue was there was a distrust of Dr. King's motives. It wasn't just a questioning of his methods. And so uh, to, to make sure that there was a path, a frame, and an opportunity for folks to engage in what had led to the success in uh, Montgomery during the bus boycott, you have then the birth of the Progressive National Baptist Convention. And when I pastored a progressive church when I was there uh, in, in Chicago, I remember going to my first convention. And the first thing that they said boldly and still say today, that we were the denominational home of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We were the space and the place, the crucible, where the principles of direct action were cultivated, shared, disseminated, and then in order to help facilitate uh, the outcome. And so, uh, as Pastor just said, this notion that, uh, you know, we've, we've kind of sanitized the meaning of Dr. King's life's work and the meaning of the holiday, that this is really to get back to what Dr. King would have us to do and would have done himself. Uh, speak for, be prophetic. That's what being, uh, being a prophet means, to speak for. Speak for those things that are going on with the complicit silence of folks who would rather go along and get along uh, rather than make a difference in a change. So when we think about this today, where are we using our voices? Where are we using our presence to make sure that the principles of justice on behalf of those who often have no voice, have no place, have no advocate, have no defender, where those things can happen? And that's not just in the courtroom. It's in the hearing room. It's in the boardroom. And it's in the streets. Before you go, do we still feel that same tension in the church specifically? The, well, I mean, I say the church today. I'm not going to just say the black church. Is the same tension still there? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, um, the, the issue was not could you get the majority of churches and pastors go along? Could you get a critical mass, reach a tipping point where the momentum of change could no longer be stopped. And that tension is very much there. There are conversations that are happening uh, right now that the church, uh, black church, white church, depending on uh, which you know frame of reference folks might bring, may be a little too political. The church shouldn't be political. And my argument always is if, if you've been reading that book, the first thing that got noticed, the first dimension of power that got awareness of the birth of Christ was the government. And so if your church, if your presence, if your work is not impacting the lives of people and keeping and putting the government on notice, then maybe we have a total misunderstanding of, uh, of what church is. And so I think there is that ongoing tension, but there's the ongoing need to make sure that we still have critical mass because we can't get caught up in, in the, you know, the, the counting of numbers. Somebody's got to be about this work. And if it's just a handful, then you keep building that handful until you get to that critical mass that allows you to facilitate change. I'm not sure if Santita's still there. Ah, thank you. Oof, if my own, my connection continues to go in and out. Dwight McKee, what is your sense of how Dr. How Dr. King is perceived or misperceived today? I mean, would he have been at 
what would he have been doing for his birthday? Would he have been celebrating? Hosea Williams, Reverend Hagler, you made me think of the first uh, celebration of the King holiday in 1986 when we were in Washington at the big party in Washington, D.C. And it, Reverend Hosea Williams said, Martin would kick our behinds. He didn't quite put it that way. <laughs> for having this big party tonight because there is so much work to be done. Dwight McKee, Amen. your sense of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. Well, I think that to reduce Dr. King's birthday to a day of painting walls and classrooms and passing out biscuits to soldiers is really kind of a misunderstanding of who Dr. King was. I think that we should you know, have encouraged our kids to join the Boy Scouts or the Brownies or the Girl Scouts to do that. That's not who Dr. King was, what Dr. King was about. Dr. King was about a lifestyle, about a philosophical and intellectual commitment to truth and justice that you worked at every day. I mean, it's, it's like when you take your vows for marriage, if you would tell the preacher that I will be, you know, I will love, honor, and obey on Valentine's Day, you know, well, then you miss what marriage is about. Is this, it's this a commitment to a lifelong, uh, it's a lifelong commitment to fighting for those who can't fight for themselves. And if Dr. King was alive today, if he was still functional, he would be uh, leading demonstrations and marches and boycotts against both of these wars. And he would be leading the charge on the Congress to force them to, to try to change the budget from a military budget to a domestic peace budget. I would be hoping he wouldn't have to do it. He'd be 95 years old. I'd be hoping we would have passed that torch to other generations like what Dr. Hagler and them are doing, picking up on the spirit of the Poor People's Campaign. And I would hope that the new generation of Baptist ministers like Uri, as I see him, see him leading that charge, would be acclimating their churches for that kind of fight. And we would not put that burden on Dr. King at 95 almost like we put it on Reverend Jackson at 83. So there's a responsibility for every generation to pick up on that fight. But again, the fight is, is a commitment to social justice and a commitment to the principles of nonviolence and a commitment to the spirit of Christ. Everybody, let's talk about Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King today. Who was he? Who is he? You know, Reverend Hagler, I can't say who was he. I have to say who is he. Who is he? He's as alive to me as he ever was. He is alive. He is alive. He is alive. He is alive. And yeah, even in a wheelchair or in a bed, he'd still be pushing. Just as we saw Reverend Jackson pushing on Saturday, you started laughing when you looked at Reverend as he was struggling to speak. You said he can't stop at organizing. No, we can't. <laughs> That's right. So, so we'll right. continue back with more of the Santita Jackson Show on the King Holiday. How would he 
celebrate his own birthday. What would he be talking about today? Would he support the Palestinians? Would he want Israeli securities to be tied to uh, Palestinian justice? Would he charge Israel with genocide? All of the above, yes. Let's talk about it on the San Peter Jackson Show just a few minutes. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Santita Jackson Show on WCPT 820, the nation's largest progressive talk radio station. At AM 950 Radio, the voice of progressive Minnesota, uh, let's talk about Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and who he is. I cannot talk about him in the past tense because he is more relevant today than he ever was. These issues that we're facing uh, that are controversial, he would be on the controversial side of these issues. He would not be standing with the genocide of Palestinian men, women, and children. No, he would not. He would be standing with South Africa, cheering them on in their case. He would be chastising Germany. He would be chastising our government for supporting this. He would be chastising our government for these wars all over the world. He'd be chastising our government for not having passed the George Floyd Policing Act and for not covering our voting rights. He would be chastising our government, and he would be under surveillance still. So let's talk about this. Let's talk about this with the former chair of the Poor People's Campaign, Fellowship for Reconciliation, the brilliant Reverend Graylin Hagler, and Dwight McKee, brilliant social scientist. Reverend Hagler, I keep saying that Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King is not who he was, but who he is. Why is he relevant today? How is he relevant today? How does he touch the issues that... Um, that bedevil us now. Well, I think that his spirit has captured that urgent spirit of now, that urgent call of now that caused your father to leave seminary and follow King, that called many of us out of the neighborhoods and communities in which we existed and lived to embrace that message, that call, the urgency of now. Because we were disturbed by what we saw around us. And somehow the call of Dr. King really crystallized that and made sense and made us want to respond to it. And so we responded to it. And that message continues to be out there, that spirit calling forth other generations and future generations to agitate and to engage. And no matter where we have gone in this world, whether it was South Africa, Mozambique, Cuba, any of the places where there's been a movement of people to be empowered, they always can cite the spirit of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And, you know, I'm part of the Fellowship of Reconciliation which is one of the few organizations that Dr. King joined 
because he understood our radical call to nonviolence and our call also to resist the systems and the structures that devalued human dignity and human life. And therefore, we continue to be a part of that spirit. And that spirit will never die. That spirit will never be assassinated or destroyed. Just like I was called and your father was called, Sandita, other generations will be called to continue to lift up the mantle and to demand that justice manifest itself. And we will continue in that mission. Well, let me ask you, before I pivot to uh, Dwight McKee, what about, did you have the same resistance to what Dr. King was doing? Uh, I remember uh, my, my parents, well, I don't remember this, but certainly my parents telling me about how, tell me about how Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King pulled my father out of seminary. Semester before he finished at the University of Chicago, you all were over there together. And... Yes. Um, and these were men who were very prepared to lead the movement, Reverend Hagler and Dwight McKee. They were formally trained people. I think it's important for us to, to know that. They had gone to uh, some of the uh, HBCU, some of the top uh, predominantly white institutions. They had earned PhDs, masters, and on and on and on. And as my father's about to finish his master's, Dr. King said, no, you need to come with me right now. My father looked at him like he was crazy. I got a full scholarship here. Let me finish. He said, you have your doctorate. Are you serious right now? He said, I can teach you more about theology than you can ever learn in that seminary. Jesse, come with me. What do you think he meant by that? Well, I think that the real education took place in the field, took place in the communities, in the cities, in the towns where people were facing oppression and were disempowered by the very structures of society. And what was important about the academic nature was that in order to understand where we were going, we needed to understand the historical mechanisms that brought us there, the, the types of things that right now are under attack in Florida and other places as they continue to denounce critical race theory and want to rewrite history because they don't want people to understand the continuity of the struggle and understand that America is not what some mythologizing politician claims it is, but it is it exists with its lumps, bumps, bruises, and blemishes. It exists in a mechanism of greed that continues to destroy the poor and send young women and men off to war to advance the cause of corporations and the military industrial complex. We need to understand that history. And that's a part of what it means to study and to know where we come from and therefore ultimately to know what we need to do and where we need to be going. You know, Reverend Hagler, that that's what's so painful when I watch the Wounded Warrior Project, and certainly uh, I support those projects. But, you know, they say they were defending our country. I said, no, no, they were not. And they went there doing that. But, in fact, 
that is not the mission that they've been on, and Dr. King pushed back against that, Reverend Hagler. That's right. It That's was, right. I mean, it's been the corporation. Please explain. Well, it's just like George Bush could stand up after 9-11 and say they hate us because of our freedoms, no. never defining what those freedoms are and whether those freedoms actually existed, and also ignoring the ways in which we have disrupted the world that we create the kind of blowback, kind of backlash. It's just like right now for all these folks to be horrified by what happened in Israel on October 7th. And don't get me wrong, it was horrendous. It was horrific. But Absolutely. To, focus on, to focus on October 7th and not to focus on 76 years of dispossession and displacement is to really misunderstand October 7th and what led up to it. And therefore, if you don't understand it, you can't undo it. And if you don't understand it, there's no critical analysis with which to bring peace, resolve, to bring justice to Palestinians, which is the only way that Israel will be safe and at peace if Palestinians have the justice that they desire and they deserve. So why, what should we be doing on the ground right now? I mean, what are the, what do you see, you know, because Dr. King challenged the church to be relevant. Well, well, if me, you could answer that question first. No, well, I'll get to that question. I want to respond to a couple of things he said first. First, they didn't, they didn't, uh, fear us for our freedom. I hate us based on our freedom. They hated us based on our, our lasciviousness. And oftentimes, we confuse freedom with debauchery. And what uh, Bin Laden in that crowd, when you looked at their writings, that's what intimidated them about America, is the debauchery they saw in our media that they didn't want to export into their countries. Second point I want to make for answer your question, Santita, is that we can't go to heaven on Dr. King's work. We have to work on our own. Dr. King was part of a was a relay runner. He picked up where uh, where um, Frederick Douglass and 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 Booker T. Washington and. Uh, Du Bois and uh, that crowd had left Ohio B. Wells. He picked up off the spirit of their work and the, the movements they had made and was trying to take us home, take us to the next level. And your your father picked up in within that spirit. You know, again, the, the Montgomery Improvement Association was named after Garvey's movement which was a Negro Improvement Association. And so I don't want us, us to see Dr. King's work in abstract or in, uh, in, in one dimension. We have to see this part of a, a, a whole struggle, a generational struggle, a people struggle, a struggle that people of goodwill had to resolve some of these issues uh, in, in, in the country, in the world. 
I don't want us to, to turn Dr. King and you know, into Santa Claus and Mr. Spirit of Christmas. I think that it's very important for us to understand that Dr. King spoke in behalf of a lot of people who was committed to the, that same spirit of, 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 of Christian goodwill. Now, what question did you, did you ask me? What was your question? Hello? Listen for Santita. Now, okay, Dwight McKee, let me hop back over to Reverend Hagler. You um, have been the co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign. You know, and picking up on what Dwight said, you know, we have turned Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. I mean, he's become a mascot, right? He's become um, he's become a Santa Claus. He's become this harmless guy. He, I mean, he was someone who was challenging. Poverty and all that goes into creating poverty in the United States, and poverty is worse today than it than it was before we had the war on poverty. I mean, what should we be doing in His Spirit going into twenty twenty four? The Iowa caucuses begin today. No one's talking about poverty at all on a day that is cold, no. bitterly cold. People are outside because they have no place to be. But outside, some people are going to die today, not just because they're outside, but because they're in their homes without heat. What what do we do going into this campaign season? I think that the first thing is to deconstruct the mythologies. I heard years ago when President Obama was in office, a Republican response to Obama, and with like this, I memorized it. It says that Obama and the Democrats want us to think that we're a country of have and have nots. We Republicans believe that we are a country of haves and hope to have. And I broke out laughing, but it was true. That's the mythology that they continue to sell. This mythology that anyone can grow up to be a millionaire, that anyone can be like a Donald Trump. We forget that most of the folks are born with silver spoons in their mouths. And most of the people continue to struggle day in and day out or wallow in poverty. That's the myth. The myth is the structure is stacked against the majority of us. And of course, a few tokens become the exception that they point to in order to validate the destructive nature of America. We need to begin to teach that. We need to begin to teach that you got a right to housing and you have a right to food and you have a right to education and allow your attitude and aptitude to carry you as far as it carries you. We need to begin to say that these things are not a privilege, but a right, and continue to push that. It's like in this political season. We don't hear, like you pointed out, anything about poverty. 
anything about poor folks. We talk about whether jobs are being delivered and nobody does the evaluation of what kinds of jobs are being delivered. We've seen the gig economy grow and people therefore are struggling to make it the best way they can. And we don't really have a ability to evaluate that, to criticize that, uh, to bring people to an understanding that all is not right in the country and that if it's going to be right and righted in the country, we need to continue to organize. We need to continue to agitate and we need to continue to disturb just like Dr. King was disturbing folks with the Poor People's Campaign and disturbing folks around his calls to economic justice and a realignment of our moral values. Why was he so hated in his lifetime? I don't think one of the, I'm so grateful that Tavis Smiley started uh, putting that information out there, you know, on a national level, um, because I think that was so important. Uh, most people, when you present that data, the polling data of that time, they're shocked, and many don't want to believe it, that it just in real time, Reverend Hagler, he was despised. And even within our community, within the black community, he was a troublemaker. And so here he comes again. He's known as the law, and it was derisive, and on and on and on and on and on. How did he go from being the Nobel Peace Prize winner in 64 to being so hated in 67 and 68? Well, one thing was that he didn't allow himself to be relegated to the place that white folks thought that black people should be relegated to. That is talking about their own conditions, but not linking those conditions with the conditions of the world. He talks about, in his Breaking Silence speech on April 4th, 1967, that unless we address this thingification of our values, we'll be going to marches forever around South Africa and Mozambique, and he lists out all of the countries and the demonstrations that we were engaged in and have been engaged in. Because he saw this issue as an issue of a larger calling. And the fact is, is that our condition in America really was a reflection of the conditions of the world. So if black people in America understood their condition, they would therefore have to be prophets to the world. P-R-O-P-H-E-T-S to the world and speak out. And the world captured the spirit and continues to capture the spirit. But even here today in America, if you talk about justice and the church, people want to question you about what does that have to do with going to heaven. And the fact is, most of us continue to be so heavenly bound that we're of no earthly good to anybody. And that's what we got to undo. 
and break the bonds around that so that we understand that our theological underpinnings has to do with justice, freedom, liberation, the elevation of human dignity so that we all can live as God intended us to live. And, and Reverend Hagler, if I may add to that, you have to also realize yes, that he was the he was an inheritor of of that tradition of the most hated man in America. Before that, Paul Robeson was branded the most dangerous Negro in America, and before that, uh, Marcus Garvey was branded the most dangerous Negro in America. Anybody in that tradition who organized against American imperialism and white oppression and white white superiority was considered dangerous to the country and was targeted. And so he was the... Absolutely true. You you may want to speak to that. Oh, yeah, you're right on it. It is absolutely true. It's that you either conform or you're challenged. I mean, if you remember, uh, as we continue to sort of go through this, even folks like Arnell West and Tavis Smiling have been maligned for basically asking the questions that need to be asked in a society about what does this have to do with the larger issues of justice because the country is comfortable with basically continuing to advance the myth rather than to deconstruct the myth and to cause people to see the realities. If you go to seminary today, much of seminary life is obsessed with how do you get a megachurch and how do you build our faith as a business rather than our faith being the undergirding for our call to justice. And that's a crime. And as early as as, as late as two weeks ago, as late as two weeks ago, we saw the president of Harvard University, who had been a you know a acclaimed scholar and lifted up as a role model for education, because he disagreed with the policies of the government, was decimated and desecrated and ultimately forced to resign from her position as a scholar and a president of Harvard because he would not take the party line. So to reinforce the questions you asked, it's still going on every day in every discipline. Once you become the rep. Once you? Once you become the rebel, once you... You don't buy into the party line once you try to fight for justice and equity and 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 and, and, and truth. You become an enemy of the state. The final minute belongs to you, Reverend Hagler. Absolutely, final oh. minute belongs to you, Reverend Hagler. Well, I just really what appreciate a- this mm-hmm. this conversation that we're having around the life and legacy mission and purpose of Dr. King. And I think really today needs to be a call to recommit ourselves to the direct actions, to 
the criticism of government and its structures to call us to a higher level of existence and to embrace, embrace a moral restructuring of our, of our values so that all life is protected and not neglected and the least of these are lifted up and those who are oppressed shall be made free. Hmm. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, celebrate his work, study his work, understand who he really, really is today. 